A little over a year and a half ago, our nation was engulfed in chaos, violence, protests, fires, looting, mob violence appear to be the norm. Uh, images of disturbances were found nationwide. And what often was labeled as somewhat of a peaceful protest turned out to be everything but, th but that. So allow me to give you some statistics to kind of give you perspective. Between May 26th to June 8th, 2020, arson, vandalism, and looting were tabulated to have caused one to two billion dollars of damages nationwide. This was the highest recorded damage from any civil disorder in US history, surpassing the record that was set during the 1992 LA riots. And as I was reviewing my notes earlier this week, um, the murder rate in Chicago was over 600. In Cook County was over 1,000. In Philadelphia was over 500. In New York, a little under 500. And in LA, about 300 people that have been murdered. Now, so having said that, giving you all these, this information, it is easy and it is fair for us to conclude that the world knows nothing about peace. Would you agree with me? Amen. They don't. However, the world cries for peace and they are looking for peace through social reform. And even though this is true, there are some who are diligently working, and I would say working overtime, to remind us of our differences. Allow me to explain. You see, the world seems to be promoting conflict between everybody. There's always conflict. There's conflict between men and women, conflict between whites and blacks, conflict between the rich and the poor, conflict between the young and the old, conflict between red and blue. When I say red and blue, I'm talking about politics, not gangs. <laughs> Conflicts between the Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the educated versus the uneducated, the refined city people versus the rural country folk, regular men who attend church on Sunday morning and those who wear a fanny pack. There's conflict everywhere. As you can tell, divisions and conflicts could be found everywhere. Sadly, they make their way into our families and sometimes they even make their way into our church. And as the holidays are upon us, I know that some of you might already feel spent, tapped out. And as many of us are gearing up and prepping our hearts to spend time with family members, I trust that this beatitude that we're gonna look at this morning will strike a chord within us all. You see, deep down the world cries for peace and we ourselves are also longing for peace. And providentially this morning, we're still at the mountaintop. We're still standing at that dusty hill, that place where the Lord Jesus Christ gave his sermon, not his first sermon, but we have a record of his entire sermon before us. And this morning, we're gonna be looking at the following beatitude, which is contained in Matthew chapter five, verse nine. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew five, we're gonna be looking at these pronouncements of blessings that were uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. These are timeless truths, and they describe for us what a kingdom citizen looks like. 
They give us a profile of the citizen of heaven. Now, we started, or I started a year ago, to walk the Beatitudes ever so slowly. I'm not in a rush to rush through them. But if you have been following along, by now, every single person that has heard at least one of them should feel unworthy, unable, incapable, impotent to living up to God's perfect law. Can I hear an amen? We can't do it. And the Beatitudes bear witness to that. As you have the text before us, I want for you to follow along with me as I give an explanation. You see, saints, left to ourselves, I'll say that again, left to ourselves, we will never realize our complete inability to save ourselves. You see, we are morally and spiritually bankrupt. If we're left to ourselves, we will conclude that we're good people, that we're able to produce something good and we're able to save ourselves. Left to ourselves, we have not hated our sin above all. We have not mourned over our sin, but I would add that we run, we have ran after our sin, pursuing it at all costs. Left to ourselves, we have not hungered and thirst for righteousness, but rather we have hungered and thirst, we've chased after cheap substitutes, idols, our choice sin that do not fully satisfy. Left to ourselves, we have not been meek, we have not been humble, but we've been proud, arrogant, assertive men and women. And if you remember me going through the beatitude of meekness, you'll remember left to ourselves, we're extra spicy people. We have not been merciful, but rather we've been unmerciful. I would add that we have not had purity of heart because our heart is divided, chasing after different things at the same time. And the last time, a month ago, that we started looking at Matthew 5, 8, purity of heart, we saw the following, that there's no way around it, saints. There is no way around it. Purity of heart, singularity of heart, oneness of heart, undivided devotion, undivided commitment to God is required to see Him. And two weeks ago, Psalm 15, David reminded us through the lyrics of this ancient psalm that the worshiper who is allowed to worship God momentarily and the citizen of his kingdom that will live with him forever has a pure heart, and that pure heart is reflected externally. It's reflected in their character as they walk upright and they do what is right. It's reflected in their speech as they speak the truth in their heart and do not slander others. It's reflected in their principles because in whose eye a vile person is despised and they honor those who fear the Lord. A pure heart is reflected in our integrity as we swear to our own hurt we tell the truth even if it costs us great hurt. And a pure heart is also reflected in our finances as we do not put our money out at interest, crushing the needy, crushing the poor. And we also do not take a bribe. So now as we're getting closer to wrap up the Beatitudes, there's eight of them, and we're number seven tonight, uh, this morning rather. I want us to take a step back. I want us to slow down for a bit. And I want us to look at them from a distance. I know that oftentimes as we diligently pursue something, we get caught up in the little things and we forget to look at the big picture. So this morning I want us to back up and get a 500 foot bird's eye view of the Beatitudes in order to see the entire picture. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. 
It's also contained in your outline this morning. And we'll read it together. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. And it says the following. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And as you have it before you, on your lap, on your device, on your Bible, or on your outline, I want you to look at them closely. Take a few moments to review these Beatitudes, these pronouncements of blessing on your own. And as you're doing that right now, please allow me to suggest to you that these Beatitudes seem to be broken up into two major categories. And they are our relationship between us and a holy God and our relationship with one another. And Christ seemed to be stressing this truth over and over again in Matthew 22, in verse 37 to 40, we have an account recorded for us in Holy Scripture where Christ was being pressed, he was being asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the, if you could sum up your law, if you could give me a summary, a synopsis, if you could give me the abridged version, a condensed version of the law, if you could give me the cliff notes of God's law, what is it? And this is what he responded. You shall, love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what Christ said. And we see the same truth revealed in the Beatitudes. Please look at them again, starting in verse <clears throat> 3. Christ said the following, blessed are the poor in spirit. What did he mean by that? I've said it over and over again. It's only when we see God's holiness, God's goodness, God's righteousness, that we realize that we in return are sinful people, wretched people. We are bankrupt. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're morally bankrupt, unable to save ourselves. And as we see ourselves in light of God's goodness, we come to the conclusion that we are poor in spirit. Look at Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn. We're mourning uh, because our sin is so grievous. Our, our sin is such an affront to a holy, righteous God. And we're mourning over the consequences of our sin against a thrice holy God. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we examine ourselves, we realize that we do not possess righteousness. That he is the righteous one and we are the unrighteous men and women and we cry, we hunger and thirst, we long for the things that God longs for or the things that reflect God in his character. Matthew 5, 8, purity of heart. As we examine ourselves, we realize that our heart is torn, our heart is divided. There's a civil war in our hearts. We're longing impure things, and God is all purity. As we look at these beatitudes, they have to do, they remind us of our relationship with God, how we respond to Him, how we respond to His holiness, how we respond toward, uh, with our sin towards Him, 
Are we mourning over our sin or are we celebrating our choice sin? Again, but these Beatitudes that I just mentioned and highlighted just a few moments ago are only, it's what happens in our hearts. These are internal responses. Now let's look at the remainder, the remaining Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. And this morning, blessed are the peacemakers. And these three Beatitudes will deal with our relationship with one another, with our neighbor, with our friends, those people that God providentially has placed around us. In case you forgot, what is meekness? Christ said, happy are the meek. What is meekness? It's to be gentle, to be mild. And some Bible translations might even translate that word with the word humble. Now I need you to consider the immediate context, the immediate listeners of Christ's sermon. It was his disciple, his men. But there was also other, there was a multitude of people that were sitting there listening to these words. And I want you to consider that politically at that moment, the Jews were longing for a Messiah. They were longing for a deliverer of the likes of King David, one who would deliver them from Rome, one who would lead an armed insurrection against the authoritarian Roman government, a man who was skilled in the arts of war, armed to the teeth. They were looking for a military, military genius. Now I want you to imagine with me their disappointment, the disillusionment, that sigh of just being let down of the multitude when they heard the following words from Christ, when he said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the mild, blessed are the men and women who do not assert themselves. And as he's saying these words, I could just imagine their disappointment because this is completely upside down. But he didn't stop there. He said, blessed are the merciful. And his as a review, what is mercy? Mercy is the other side of the coin of grace. Mercy is a withholding of immediate wrath, punishment, and justice. We're familiar with grace. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve, and mercy is not receiving what we rightly deserve. And Christ was saying that blessed, happy are these men and women who extend mercy. So as Christians, you and I extend mercy because we have been the recipients of mercy. Do you believe that truth? You don't. Do you believe that truth? I hope you do. You see, saints, when we do life with one another, we're going to need to extend mercy because we are going to be regularly sinned against by other, it, others. It comes so naturally. Why? Because our personalities, our preferences, our desires, our wants, our sinful expectations of others, our insensitivity and our pride will always get in the way. And as you're doing life and life with others, as you're in close quarters with others, one sinner surrounded by other sinners, that is an opportunity for us where we learn to extend mercy, we learn to endure, we learn to forgive, we learn to overlook, we learn to intercede, we learn to be meek, we learn to be love, uh, loving and graciously speak the truth to others, we learn to display self-control, not revile in return, and repent of all of our pride. So if I could summarize Christ's statement of the merciful, this is what he said, happy are kingdom citizens, Christians. Happy is Faith Bible Church Menifee, the men and women who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ because they have received mercy from God, and it is only they who are able to extend mercy to others. And that, does that encourage you? It should. 
And then he didn't end there, but he said the following words, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your grace. And this morning as we look at the text, I pray that you would expose our hearts, that we would be men and women that pursue peace, that you would empower us, that you would provide what is necessary because we're unable to do it on our own. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let me give you more statistics. Back in 2020, there were approximately 696,644 men and women in law enforcement. And these men and women are known or are called peace officers. Now, it's not un uncommon in the law enforcement community to see Matthew 5, 9 in t-shirts, posters, challenge coins, I myself happen to have one. So many of my brothers and sisters in blue, many of my brothers and sisters in law enforcement, they pride themselves in fighting against evil. They pride themselves in stopping crime and restraining and restricting evil men. Many of them get the satisfaction of stopping evil in its tracks stopping conflicts. Many of them wrongfully believe that they are blessed, that they are happy, that they are worthy of envy. And sadly, they even believe that they are children of God simply because they are wearing a badge on their chest. Now I get it. This profession has been maligned and misrepresented. But the men and women who work tirelessly to keep peace in our streets will always fail we will always fall short. Now, as I say this, I'm not, this is not an anti-police sermon, so please bear with me. I would say that we need faithful men and women that will do the job with excellence. And as a church this morning, I would encourage you all to pray for your local police department and your local sheriff department. We should be praying for more Christian men. I'll say that again. We should be praying for more Christian men that will respond to the call for service. And I would say that as a profession, we need more Christian men that live different lives. We need Christian men that are committed to Christ. We need Christian men that are committed to their wives. We need Christian men that are committed to their families. Most importantly, we need Christian men that are committed to the local church. And we need for these men to step up, to be an example. And if possible, step up within the ranks of leadership to impact coworkers, to impact victims of crimes, Yes, even impact criminals. This will lead impact. This will impact entire divisions, entire departments, entire families, entire communities. Now, the reason why I said law enforcement will always fall short is because they are applying a humanistic, a social reform aspect to a greater problem. They are simply applying a band-aid to a deadly wound. They're only treating symptoms. They're treating symptoms of a wicked heart. Saints, we've said this over and over again. The problem is not your local police department. The problem is not the criminal with a gun. 
The problem is found in the heart. Can I hear, hear an amen? There's no therapy. There's no counseling. There's no medication. No education. No human organization. I'm not talking about the church. No human organization that will properly address the issues in the heart. Having said that, the mere stopping of conflict is not peacemaking. I'll say that again. The mere stopping of conflict is not peacemaking. The mere restraining of evil is not peacemaking. Listen to this one. The mere avoidance of conflict is not peacemaking. Biblically speaking, peacemaking is more than that. Jesus said the following words, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If you're following along in your outline, point number one, happy are those who establish peace. Happy are those who establish peace. Jesus is a happy, blessed, highly favored, worthy of envy, supremely blessed, are those who work to establish peace. And these men and women are called peacemakers. And what is a peacemaker? I'm glad you're asking these engaging questions this morning. A peacemaker, yes, is a person who restores peace between two people, one who works for peace. But I want you to keep in mind that Matthew 5, 9 is not merely speaking about the cessation of war or simply raising a white flag of surrender. It's not simply calling out a ceasefire or calling a truce between enemies, but rather is focusing on reconciliation between two people. I'm old enough to remember the tail end of the Cold War, and this is an oversimplification of the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR, so please bear with me. But I remember as a young man, in the news, in the paper, in school, U.S., Russia, U.S., Russia. Though we were not firing bombs and missiles towards each other, there was a war going on. There was conflict, and both superpowers made a truce. They were not going to nuke each other out of the face of the earth, but they were collecting intelligence. They were infiltrating organizations, agencies. They were sending spies. They were building their military bases. Uh, they were stockpiling fighter jets, military tanks, stockpiling ammunition as a means of preventing the other from attacking. I want you to think about that. And oftentimes we do the same. Wrongly believing that just because we're not in conflict or just because we agreed to a ceasefire we have obtained peace. And I'm here to remind you that not fighting, not arguing, not complaining is not the end goal. Peacemaking is more than that. Biblical peacemaking has everything to do with reconciliation. And as you look at this beatitude, I want you to consider that biblical peace is different than worldly peace. Biblical peace is something that you and I are not able to do on our own because we cannot give what we do not have. Look what John, uh, Christ said in John 14, 27. Peace I, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Biblical peace is different, saints. 
Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are they. Happy are the men and women who are diligently committed to work out peace. And how do they work out peace? By establishing or working out reconciliation. By seeking reconciliation. And what is reconciliation? Let me simplify this. Is when you bring two warring parties together. You bring them together. And the end goal is to restore fellowship, to restore communion, to restore community with one another. And we see the greatest example of reconciliation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God reconciled sinners to himself. God reconciled sinners to himself. In Colossians 1, we need to consider the the theme of the letter to the Colossians, which was the superiority of Christ. And Paul wrote to the Colossian assembly, and he told them the following, and through him, speaking of Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Peace, reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul writes as following, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what, I'm, what am I trying to get with these verses. Well, saints, we're only able to establish peace because we have been reconciled with God. We were, only, we're able to become peacemakers because we have been reconciled with, uh, with God. You see, we just sung a few moments ago that we were enemies of the cross, we were enemies of God, and now we have been made friends. We were far off and we have been brought near. Now, please notice that as we read these two verses that deal with reconciliation, please notice that it is God who took an active approach in establishing peace. It is God who took an active approach with establishing peace. He sought you and I. He sought us. He reached out to us. He did not wait for you and I to respond positively to him. He is the one who took the initiative. In case you forgot, Scripture reminds us, we read it together, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Saints, if this is true, we ought to do the same. And I know you're sitting here asking, okay, how do I do this? And I know it's difficult, especially when you're going through personal conflict. You see, during personal conflict, as men and Christian men and women, we have to initiate reconciliation. We should be seeking out. We should be reaching out to those that are in conflict with us. But 
The reality is that we cannot establish peace with others if we're seeking our self-interest. Can I hear an amen to that? It's difficult. It's difficult to establish peace if we're seeking our self-interest. If you're holding on to your rights, if you try to reconcile, but you also want to have it your way right away, if you try to reconcile without having any humility, if you try to reconcile without having self-control, without displaying meekness, if you try to reconcile with a divided heart when it's pursuing two different things, it will be impossible for us to establish peace. Let me put it in context to the Sermon on the Mount because remember, the Beatitudes seem to be building on top of the other. You see, peace begins in our hearts. And as our heart has been exposed to our complete inability to save ourselves, we start mourning over our personal sin. We start hungering and thirsting for the things that God desires. And our God is a God of peace. And as we have an undivided heart, we're willing one thing and one thing only. What is it that we're longing for? We're, we're longing for God's glory to be made known. And it is only then that peacemaking will be easier. But again, if you do not desire righteousness like you desire food and water, if you only take a passive, an uncommitted pursuit of peacemaking, then it will be impossible. Now, I know this is contrary to the world because the world says that you'll be happy if you get yours. The happy says that as the world says you'll be blessed, you'll be fortunate if you speak your mind, if you win arguments, if you start conflict. But we know that this is not so. And sadly, we're all getting a taste of this. There are many in our culture currently who are seeking social reform and they're taking it out on the streets and they break peace to accomplish their goals. We know that there's professional instigators, professional protesters who rather than peacefully assemble and redress their government, they break peace by utilizing violence. Though we see that behavior out in the streets, behaving, uh, we might denounce it, we might condemn it. But the truth is that we might be the ones who are regularly breaking peace with others. I want you to ask yourself the following, or maybe we should be assessing our hearts. For many, no matter where we go or who we are with, conflict always seems to be following us. There's some that are frequently engaging in debates, frequently finding points of difference just to disagree, frequently correcting and censoring others, frequently feeling debates online, acting as publicists, giving your opinions, your preferences, your convictions. And I say this lovingly, I don't think anyone wants to hear them. Though they might be well-intended, this might cause more harm than good, and I trust in a group this size, we all know of someone who's always causing conflict, someone that's always breaking peace, someone that has such a personality that might be a little overbearing, constantly breaking peace. And as I'm saying this, I know you're racking your brain trying to think of a person. If no one comes to mind, you might be that person. But saints, we're not left to our own to figure this out. James, the younger brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, addressed this very issue. James chapter 4 says the following, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not re receive because you ask wrongly to spend, spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Look at verse 4. He's talking about our emotions. You want this and desire that, and your passions are at war. And then he says, you adulterous people. I find that interesting, but it is still driving the same point home. Why does he do this? Because he's highlighting the impurity of the heart, a heart that is divided, a heart that is willing two different things that are opposing, wanting impure things, and this results in passions being at war in our hearts. And when our heart is full of two, is pulling and tugging in two different directions, our heart, heart will be full, filled with turbulence. And the waters in our ocean, so, so to speak, will be troubled. And when others collide with us, or when others even come near us ever so slightly, what's inside of our heart will spill out. Internal conflict always results in external conflict. So this beatitude is asking us to examine ourselves. Saints during conflict, do we regularly establish peace by reconciliation? Or do we seek to establish peace by avoidance? We should be asking ourselves. Saints during conflicts, do you prove God's goodness and reconciliation or you're just bent on proving your own point to win an argument? Husbands, let me address you this moment. Do you avoid addressing sin in your home? Do you relinquish your God-appointed headship in order to keep the peace, to not appear to be insensitive, domineering, overbearing. Husband, do you avoid confronting your, your children's disobedience, their sinful response toward authority, just to keep the peace? Do you just want to go to bed? You're tired. You're weary. It's been a long day. Wives, when your husband sins against you, do you put a white flag of surrender do you externally manufacture a smile, pretend everything's okay, avoid, ignore, keep quiet at the mouth, but internally, oh, internally, you have unleashed weapons of mass destruction, fiery darts aimed at his heart, and these darts are bitterness, anger, resentment, frustration, there's no need for you to answer out loud, answer in your hearts. But Jesus said the following, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Point number two, if you're still with me, peacemaking is a godly quality. Peacemaking is a godly quality. Saints, there are doctrinal and theological truth about our Heavenly Father that we must embrace, that we must accept, and that is that our God is peace. Our God is peace. He is the ultimate peacemaker. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace 
will be with you. Romans 15.33, may the God of peace be with you. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Philippians 4.7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And lastly, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. There we have it before us. These are just a few verses in the New Testament that remind us that our God is peace. It is our God who establishes peace. It is our God who has reconciled us to himself. He has done this already. He sought us out. And in return, you and I, we ought to be reconciling with others. We ought to be the men and women who establish peace by working out reconciliation with others. And this is such a serious matter that Jesus Christ addressed this very issue of reconciliation in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses later, the same crowd, the same preacher, he addresses this issue. In Matthew 5, 23, Jesus says the following. Please look at, look, look at it with me. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, we'll stop there. What do you notice? So if you're offering your gift at the altar, notice that the worshiper at that moment is engaged in worshiping. He's offering something to God. He's bringing his offering to God. So he's doing a godly thing in a godly place. He's at the altar. So far, it's looking pretty good for the worshiper, right? He's at the right place. He's worshiping the right God. And he's doing, working out, he's giving worship with giving offering. And then Jesus adds, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be what? Let's read it with conviction. First be, I, I said it with conviction. First be to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what is Jesus telling us? That we make peacemaking and reconciliation a priority. That it comes even before your worship. Are you grasping the severity of this? Christ is saying, put your worship on hold. Stop your singing. Stop your praying. Stop your offering giving. If you know that there's conflict with one another, you will put him on hold, if you will, and you're gonna go make that right with one another. I've said this before. It's not in your notes because it just came to me. Husband, if you're in conflict with your wife, you, you better know the truth of what scripture says that the Lord does not answer your prayers. He doesn't hear them. So we need to go make those things right. Amen to that. <laughs> Reconciliation and peacemaking is a priority with God. And we, kingdom citizens, we men and women who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, we ourselves also make it a priority. And I know you're sitting there at, maybe the Lord 
It's bringing people to mind where there is or has been or currently in conflict. You might be sitting here thinking, I can't do this. These are great questions. Now, there might be certain instances where others refuse to grant forgiveness, when others refuse to be reconciled with you. So what do you do then? Romans 12 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The reality is that we live in a fallen and broken world, and the simple fact is that others might refuse to reconcile with us. But even if that's the case, that does not give us a free pass to stop trying. Can I hear an amen? How do we know if we've done enough? How do we know if we've done everything possible? And for this, we need one another. We need others to look into our efforts. And the reason why I say this is because many times we might think that we have done it all. Many times if we are the recipients of sin, mistreatment, slander, gossip, character assassination, and we try to reconcile with others, we might feel that we have done everything that we possibly can. Some of us, some of us probably already have said these words, I am done with so-and-so. You see, when, when our emotions run high, when we have been mistreated, misrepresented, we might think that we have done enough. And it is vitally important for you to reach out to others and have them take a look at your action to, deter, to determine whether or not you have done all that is possible. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Point number three, we're still with me. Peacemaking is linked to sonship. Peacemaking is linked to sonship. Saints, as we've been studying the Beatitudes, it stands out, this one stands out specifically because this is the only Beatitude that has sonship or daughtership or being a child associated with it. This is the only one. So I think it's worth noting. And Christ is saying, that the visible evidence that you are his child is if you regularly establish peace by reconciliation. As a child, you will reconcile with others. Now, please keep in mind, these are not my words. These are Christ's words. We will reconcile with others. We will pursue that. As most of you know, I have two young daughters. And many times I like seeing them from a distance, playing with each other, just hanging out. And there's a lot of things that I see that I do myself and them from a distance. And then there's other things as we're engaging in fellowship and community, there's a lot of things that I see that I also see in their mother. You see, when they respond in obedience, when they serve others, when they work diligently, when they show kindness, generosity, compassion, Humility, meekness, teachability. I rejoice. I rejoice. I don't take credit for this, but I seek to remind my bride how blessed my daughters are to have them as her mother because I see these qualities in her. But the reality is that when they respond in anger, hypothetically, disobedience, frustration, 
defiance, my wife in return faithfully reminds me, those are your kids. <laughs> so what am I trying to get at? If you are his, you will behave like your heavenly father. As a genuine son and as a genuine daughter, you will start behaving like your heavenly father and we will make reconciliation a priority. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Look at that again. Look at that beatitude one more time. Who is going to call you a son or a daughter of God? Now this blessing, this beatitude is reminding us that we are currently here and now at this very moment, you and I, the men and women who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, at this very moment, we are makarios, we are blessed, we are happy, we're fortunate, we're supremely blessed, we're worthy of all envy because our sins have been forgiven. But there will be a day when our Heavenly Father will call us His children. And this is a source of encouragement for us all. But I also believe that there's more to this beatitude. You see, saints, when we respond in obedience, when we put our rights aside, when we seek God's righteousness, when we seek God's character to be magnified, when we seek to reconcile with others, when we forgive offenses, and when we pursue peacemaking through reconciliation, when we positively respond to this beatitude, when we run towards conflict with reconciliation as a goal, we demonstrate to an unbelieving world that biblical peacemaking is possible and what it looks like. And when this happens, saints, this is so upside down, this is so different that the world will not know how to respond to this. But know this, that in return, the unregenerate, the heathen, those that are enemies of God will recognize that you are a different person. And it is then during conflict, when you're mistreated, when you're sinned against, that those that are enemies of God will affirm that you are a Christian, that you're a believer, that you're a kingdom citizen, that you behave radically different, that you're a child of God, and this is to the glory of God, because we live different lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So I know you're sitting here and you're asking, okay, so what, what I, how do I respond to this? You might be sitting here thinking, this is too much. I've offended too many people and I've done so much damage, damage beyond repair. I'm not able to fix these broken pieces and broken lives. I can't do anything. You, you just don't understand how sinfully, how depraved I once was. This is impossible. And the answer to that is, you are absolutely right. Humanly speaking, we probably won't be able to wrong, right every wrong. But I need you to remember that peacemaking will require a sacrifice. Peacemaking requires work. It might cause you to be feel discomfort. It requires you to positively respond to God's word. Peacemaking forces all of us, men and women, young and old, all of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, to look at the cross of Christ and remember the gospel. You see, it is only because of the gospel that we're able to establish peace. It is only through the gospel that we're able to be right, be made right with God. It's not based on a performance, but it's based on Christ's perfection. You see, we were enemies of God, pursuing our own sin, doing what we wanted, having no rules, no restrictions, pursuing our sins at all costs. 
And God sought us out. He took an active approach. He reached out from heaven and he came to earth. He sent his, his son, the second person of the Trinity, to live that perfect life, that life that you and I were not able to live on our own. And he went to the cross for us. Yes, we have failed already. Uh, we've, we have all sinned against God, but the good news is that Christ accomplished righteousness for us. And because of that, we're able to establish peace and reconcile with others because of what Christ has done. But in case you forgot, let me, rem let me rem uh, remind you that he was despised, and now you are loved. He was rejected, and now you and I are accepted. He was abandoned by his Father, and God the Holy Spirit will be with us always. He was crushed outside of the city at the place of the skull. And you and I are welcome of citizens in his holy city. And it is because of Christ that you and I are able to worship. It is because of Christ that we're able to reconcile. It is because of Christ that we're able to establish peace with one another. And we will live in his kingdom as sons and daughters forever, all because of what Christ accomplished on the cross for sinners like, us, uh, like ourselves. Can I hear an amen to that truth? And it is with great joy as we look at the gospel and, and, and the beauty of the gospel, that we could sing with joy the words of the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Perfect Submission. I know you know these. Perfect Submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. These are encouraging words. And as I wrap this up, my desire this morning is for you to leave here with this beatitude in mind. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So reconciliation and peacemaking is possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.